All right. I am slightly underdressed today because I'm going on sabbatical next week and I just don't care. So, so for anybody who's struggling with the fact that I'm wearing shorts, then take it up with the Lord. If I felt like chilling today, be here 15 years as a pastor, I've earned the right. All right. So when Dana was talking, she said, sometimes we get out of here at 1230 and stuff like that. Today will be included. So just so you know, it's going to be one of them days. We got a lot to talk about. So I'm going to say a lot and then I'm going to summarize everything at the end. So if you get lost in the weeds, don't worry about it. I will summarize everything that I'm thinking that I think is biblical as best as I can at the end. So if you get lost, don't worry about it. I will summarize everything. Last week. I stated that I was going to change the question, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Because I don't think that that question is helpful. Because when we ask that question, what we're saying is, can the demon take control of a Christian? But then you see people who actually say they're Christians and demons get cast out of them and it leaves us with a measure of confusion. I said, I'm going to ask a different question Instead of, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? And that question is this. What is the relationship between cosmic powers of darkness and the Christian? And what influence, if any, do demons have over us? Now, by us, I'm talking about believers. So if you're not a Christian and you're here, thank you. But this would be primarily... What's the influence of demons over those who profess to believe, even though there would be some application for you as well? We ended last week with 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15, where I highlighted that Paul's concern for the Corinthian church was that they were accepting a different truth. He was concerned. And among those concerns was that they were receiving a different spirit. The spirit comes from Satan. We see this in verses 13 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. Here's how Paul ends that particular argument, saying, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. This goes against our sort of contemporary understanding of evil and Satan because we tend to think that Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy and wants everything to be World War III. And so we think, well, that's not that bad. I mean, these people just, it's not that. But here he appears as an angel of light. And so his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, servants of obedience, which means there will be morality used as a strategy that is evil. Principally, in summation of 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15, Paul in essence is saying that a believer, a professed believer, having received the Holy Spirit, can receive a different spirit that is demonic. 
That's his concern. It is Satan's job to get us to believe in a different Jesus, receive a different spirit, and believe a different gospel through the use of false teachers and their theology. That's what we said last week. And that creates a tension. That creates a tension. If you are a genuine Christian in this room, despite what you may think you think, and despite your confidence in what you believe, there are genuine tensions in the Bible that your confidence and your beliefs do not resolve. Case in point. In 1 Thessalonians 5, here's what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, beginning in verse 16 to 22. Here's what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Well, the Greek word for quench is benimi. It means to extinguish, to put out. It can mean to stifle or suppress, to stop, to put out a fire. So believers were, are warned by Paul not to put out and extinguish the Holy Spirit. He's saying it's possible as a believer. In fact, when Mike was praying, Mike used this term, uh, how would you say it? Cooperate. Cooperate with. Believers are warned not to extinguish the Holy Spirit. In context, to the Thessalonians, quenching the spirit seems to be despising prophecy, not testing what is good, not abstaining from every form of evil. So at best, the concern to the Thessalonians is that they are capable of stopping the spirit's work in them by their disobedience. At worst, because he used the word quench, it means they are capable of putting out the fire of the spirit in them. But no, no, but no Christians will, hold on, do not ignore the tension. So as a principle, you can put out, extinguish the spirit, rendering it ineffective or incapable of working in you. Which makes sense if you can receive a different spirit. And here comes the tension, another tension of the faith. Why did Paul use the word quench instead of grieve? In Ephesians 4, he used grieve. Look, look, Ephesians 4, 26 through 30. Here's what he says. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Hear that? Don't give an opportunity to the devil, which means as a believer, you can give opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, it's settled. Holy Spirit, you're sealed. No Christian can hold on. He's saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Lepeo is the Greek word. It means to vex, irritate, offend, insult, become sad, sorrowful, distressed, to grieve. Okay. Grieving is not quenching. Quenching, grieving is upsetting the spirit. Quenching is removing the spirit. Why did Paul say you can quench the spirit and didn't say grieve here instead? Commentary on Ephesians 4.30 says this. Grieving the spirit reflects a serious offense. In Isaiah 63.10, one of only two Old Testament texts that use the title Holy Spirit, it refers to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, which led to their rejection by God. Similarly, Israel's rebellion against the Spirit led Moses to sin with his mouth, according to Psalm 106.33. On sealing, as a sign attesting that no one has tampered with the sealed merchandise, the Ephesians must preserve their attestation for the day when their redemption would be complete. He says the Ephesians must preserve. They have a responsibility. They must do something to preserve the spirit. The attestation, it gives proof, evidence. He's saying that believers have a responsibility to make sure that they cooperate with the spirit. Keep in mind the exhortation not to give an opportunity to the devil. Paul says this to Timothy, a young pastor that he discipled and trained. In 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 7, he says this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power, love, and self-control. In 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, he says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, listen to that, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Listen to what he's saying. Some people arguing over what is falsely called knowledge and believing they have this knowledge have swerved from the faith. So these would have been people who profess to be believers, who we would have thought are Christians, based upon some knowledge that they now have, left the faith. Do you see the tension? He tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. It means make that thing work for you. On the immortal worlds of Ray Charles, make it do what it do, baby. 
And he tells them to guard the deposit and trust it to you. Because some people who did not guard it have swerved from the faith. Both of these statements are about Timothy's responsibility to steward the Holy Spirit. And here is the tension that often produces confusion in us. And we mostly see it when we ask those questions, but how can a Christian fill in the blank? Our questions come out of our beliefs and experience that people are Christian, but we're trying to resolve a tension the Bible does not resolve. Good theology doesn't resolve tensions. Good theology acknowledges them and tells us how to live in light of them, but it doesn't resolve them. We're trying to resolve them. And if we try to resolve them what the Bible doesn't, then our experience is guiding our theology when our theology should be guiding our experience. We need to be honest about what the Bible says about salvation and about a Christian. Case in point, Romans 10, 9 through 13. Here's what Paul says, beginning of verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there was no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes and amen. You profess to believe you are a Christian. That same Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The same Paul that wrote, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you call the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That same Paul said you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. So you're a Christian when you believe, you're saved, but then you are being saved. There's a tension. Are you a Christian or not? 2 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Incredible passage. He just told these believers that they have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. What a statement of encouragement for a bunch of Christians who are running for their lives in fear of persecution. To hear Peter, the most known apostle, to say you have a faith that's of equal standing of ours. That same Peter, in the same chapter of 2 Peter 1, says this in verse 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, 
be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, what he listed in verses 5 through 7, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the same Peter that said, you have a faith equal of ours, also said, make your calling and election sure. Practice these qualities. You won't fail. In my 15 years as a pastor, across the go, I have friends in other places. You know I go places and preach. I have seen many people who profess to believe that do not make their calling and election sure. Paul had no problem with the tension of you're saved at confession, but you're not saved really until the conclusion. He had no problem with the tension. No problem in it. Peter had no problem. Your faith is equal to ours, but make sure your faith is genuine. He had no problem with the tension. None. He doesn't resolve it. He just explains it's real. And you got to do both of them. Don't ignore the tension. When it comes to salvation, we're not even going to touch all the letters to the churches that say to those who conquer, I will give. It's not to those who confess to believe in Jesus. Many people profess to believe. When it comes to salvation, we are saved at confession. But we are being saved by conviction. Until we're saved at the conclusion. When it comes to the spirit, it is a gift. It's a seal but it's a responsibility to steward, to cooperate with, or there will be consequences. If anyone in here who professes to believe thinks that you can do just wild stuff, just sin or just get into the occult and do all that stuff, and now the Spirit's going to protect you, you do not understand your Bibles. Christianity is more a name you earn when you get to eternity. Amen. Christian is more a name you earn. At best for now, all of us profess to believe. We live as if we believe, and when we conquer to the end, God will confirm you believed. And you know why? Because my spirit was in you. Let's also be clear. Let's be honest. It's Sunday, right? Tell the truth today. Many of us don't feel the Holy Spirit in us. You don't feel like it. So what's the evidence that you have the seal of the Holy Spirit? Does it wake you up and say, good morning, my son or daughter? <laughs> People be like, Kurt, what, is, what does it feel like to be a pastor? The same way it feels like not to be one. I don't wake up and be like, good morning, Jesus. Good morning, my son. I know today what you're going to do. Wait till I show you. No, I wake up. I got to use the bathroom. 
I got notifications on my phone. I'm distracted by them. I'm thinking about what I got to do today. Man, is this person going to meet? Should I follow up? Man, I should probably move this meeting. Should I do this? Let me hear. I got to do that. Oh, I got a Facebook notification. Let me see who that is. And uh, Oh, I got a couple YouTube comments. Let me comment on them. Oh, I need to pray right now. It's not like I got a measure of the spirit that just has me like, Lord, your word is so. And let's be clear, we've seen many people who were, had the office of pastor swerve from the faith. Don't ignore the tension. Your questions of, well, how can a Christian are based on your perception of their Christianity? This is why John said this in 1 John 2. Verses 18 and 19, here's what he said. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's talking about people who profess to be Christians, lived life with them, went to church with them, prayed with them, confessed their sins, broke bread together. At some point, some of those people were like, it's a wrap for me. I'm leaving the faith. Don't be confused by your beliefs and what makes you feel comfortable theologically. We are not Christians unless we believe until we leave. We need to believe when we leave, and then the Lord will confirm. I have not persevered to the end, and while I have confidence of my salvation based on my confession and my conviction, I have not, I'm not taking my last breath. But there are people in this church who've taken their last breath, and they, they did it as believers. We may think somebody's saved, but if we know them enough and we see, there's some people that that I thought were godly people that have swerved from the faith. This is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We test ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We cannot change truths in the Bible to make us feel more comfortable. Y'all can watch it on video. I love my church. Rewind that back. What did Jay-Z say? Y'all want that old Jay-Z? Buy my old albums. We cannot change truth to make ourselves feel more comfortable about it. We cannot resolve tensions the Bible does not resolve just because we think it does or it sounds good to us. At best, we are people who profess to believe. When we make it to the end, God will say, you are my son. You are my daughter. And guess what? You made it to the end because my spirit kept you. Having said all of that, what is the relationship then between cosmic powers of darkness and those of us who profess to believe? And what influence, if any, do demons have over us? Let's return to the passage that Karen read this morning in Mark 9. 
I believe this is a very important passage to answer this question. Mark 9, beginning of verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, we're going to verse 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down then foams and grinds his teeth and it becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Here's another tension. Here's a significant tension for many of us. Jesus said, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. The Greek word for childhood is patiothane. And it's translated from childhood, but could be from infancy, a young child. So this boy's father just told Jesus that a demon has possessed his son at a very young age, probably the age of a toddler. Here's attention. Because many of us would never think that a demon would possess a child. And this boy just, this man just told Jesus, this has been happening from childhood. We don't know the spiritual condition of these people, but we do know demons can and do possess children. What attention. Jesus didn't have any issue with it. Here's what it says, continuing in verse 22. And it is often cast them into fire and water to destroy them. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that statement. That's a tension statement. I do believe, but I'm, I don't believe too, though. So now when people ask you a question, you say, well, yes and no. And they'd be like, I believe, but I don't believe too, right? That summarizes all of us. There are things that we believe about God and things that we do not believe. We don't say that we don't believe them because it's not God that is saying them, but it's how we feel and how we act. Or says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, keep in mind with this the spirit it was mute and deaf. Mutant death. That was a demon. That was not just a neurobiological condition of the boy. It was a demon. And Jesus called him by his name. You're mutant death. That is your responsibility to make him mute and deaf. And after crying out, verse 26, the boy convulsed. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. 
And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, many of our Bibles, there will be some kind of marker that will say something like this. In the original manuscripts, it says prayer and fasting. Or some manuscripts add and fasting. So if you're, depending on what translation you use, it might say prayer and fasting. So here's the question we have to answer. Who was Jesus talking to in verse 29? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Who was he talking to? I don't mean literally. Of course, he's talking to the disciples. That's obvious, right? Don't make me Captain Obvious, right? He's talking to the disciples. But when he says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting, is he instructing the disciples who were in front of him on the strategy they need to implement if they can't cast out a demon? Or is he making a statement to all of his disciples, including those in this room, about the way we need to interact with cosmic powers in a world ruled by the devil. Who was he talking to? Was this a deliverance ministry strategy for the 11 apostles in front of him? Or, the, or whoever was with him? Or was this a statement, Jesus knowing that all people are going to read these words? Is this a statement to all of us to give us perspective on what to do when demonic influence is significant. Well, obviously, he's talking to the disciples, right? But I do not think these words were only for those men and women, whoever else was there. Nor do I believe he was simply giving them a strategy to follow after he's gone. I think he was talking to disciples of all time that would believe in him. And he was stating that prayer and fasting are necessary to get rid of demonic influence. Let me explain why I think this. If Jesus were only talking to the disciples, it leaves a lot of questions that need to be answered. If he's just talking to the people who were with him in the room when he said that, it leaves a lot of questions. Like, why are prayer and, and fasting and praying necessary when Jesus already gave them authority to cast out demons, and they did so successfully. Like, you get authority from Jesus to cast them. Remember, they came back and rejoiced, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. They was all excited, dancing, milli-whopping, even the demons. <laughs> and Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So why do they need to fast and pray when Jesus already gave them authority to cast out demons and they've done so successfully up to this point? He never said that there's going to be some demons y'all can't do. When they went out, had they not run into a, a stronger demon before? How long do they have to fast and pray when they can't cast a demon out of this kind? How long is, he, is, it, do they, is it three days? So when they're going around and preaching... And they, and they can't cast out a demon. What do they pray and how long do they pray before the demon is cast out? We can keep going with questions that would be like, man, if he's just talking to them, how would they have understood that? He gave no other qualifications except prayer and fasting. Not fast for three days, pray for 12 hours, the demon will come out. Because he wasn't just talking to them. 
And he wasn't giving a strategy, but describing a way of life. Let me tell you why I believe he was talking to all of his disciples, including, but not limited to, those in this room. Because Jesus taught prayer and fasting to everyone in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, beginning of verse 7, listen to what he says. And when you pray, so the assumption is not if you pray, right? That's the right proposi- the preposition, right? Right preposition? When you pray, not if you pray, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Let me just say this real quick sidebar. This is, a, this, is, this is true what Jesus said. So sometimes when we're in a group and we're tired and we're like, let's have two people close out in prayer, that's not the time for you to pray for 15 to 20 minutes with people because, because you haven't prayed all week. Pray quick, be brief and amazing. The Lord doesn't need all the words. There are people in this room that know I'm talking about. They be going in. We be tired as I don't know what. And you just praying and praying and praying. Man, you ain't prayed all. We don't make up for it now in front of us. I probably shouldn't have said a sidebar. But I'm going on sabbatical. I'm wiry right now. It's just y'all, y'all in trouble right now. He says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. Tension. 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 If you forgive others their trespasses, the Father will forgive you yours. He's talking to people who profess to believe. But if you do not forgive others, then the Heavenly Father won't forgive you yours. And there's no one who makes it into heaven without their sins being forgiven. No one. So Jesus is telling people who are believers, if you do not forgive others their sins against you, then you will not have your sins forgiven against him. Tension. Because we act like, look, I know some people like, look, I'm sorry. I just ain't forgiven. I ain't forgiven them. All right, then you're not forgiven. It's as simple as that. Remember in 2 Corinthians 2 when Paul said, uh, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes? And I said, look, unforgiveness. You read 2 Corinthians 2, not right now, obviously. I know how some of y'all do. Read 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 10. Paul says, look, forgive this brother. He said, if you forgive him, we forgive him. Because we know that we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. Unforgiveness is a scheme of the devil. So when you're hurt, bitter, offended, and you think you don't got to forgive nobody, that's the devil telling you you have the right to not forgive them. And that's a scheme of the devil. Because Jesus says if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Right after prayer, right after this, same passage, beginning of verse 16, he teaches on fasting. Prayer first, fasting. And when you fast, right preposition, not if. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disguise their faces and their fasting so they may be seen by others. Yeah, but truly I say to you, they receive their reward. You ever seen somebody do that? Just looking hurt. Like, you all right, man? I'm just tired, man. You you tired? No, I'm fasting, bro. It's like, (laughs) well, 
Whatever you had for fasting, you just lost it fast. He said, truly I say to you, they received their reward. The recognition from others was your reward. Because you wanted to be known. I'm just, man, I'm just trying to really trust the Lord and fast. Man, sit your behind down. He said, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, look clean. Look like you just ate. He said, that your fasting... That your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. He talks about prayer and fasting as something believers are supposed to do. The assumption is when you do these things, it's a part of life. Jesus is not just telling his disciples you cast out this kind of demon as a strategy. He's talking to all of us that prayer and fasting are fundamental supernatural weapons against demonic influence. Another reason why I believe he's talking to all of us is because prayer and fasting was done by all the disciples, not just the 11, not just the people in the room. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. And they still are fasting and praying. Acts 14, 19 through 23. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. <laughs> hold on. Just be, let me just, hold on, hold on. Let me make sure you understand what just happened. When you get stoned, right, you're bound usually where you can't defend yourself. That was the, you're bound, and they just throw rocks at your face until they think you're dead. And you get, after so many hits, you just drop, and you're dead. They did this to Paul, figured, all right, he's dead. The disciples gathered around him to look at him and see if he was dead, probably to grieve. And Paul got up, <laughs> rose and entered the city. Now, I don't know how much time passed because the Bible doesn't always say that, but it gives the impression like Paul was just banged up and just got up like, let's go over here and preach. <laughs> if that's true, gangster. Sometimes I wish the Bible was like, and Paul took six to eight weeks to heal up and then went to the city. It doesn't give us that clue. It just says he entered the city. And on the, oh, look, and on the next day, it was, on the next day. So he was stoned and left for dead and got up, and the next day went with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel at that city, sidebar, none of us have any excuse. Dudes is getting stoned. And he ain't had no Advil, no ibuprofen, no nothing, no ice pack. His head was swelled up, and he was like, man, we're going to preach. Probably couldn't talk right. Head hurt. Can you imagine sneezing when your head hurts like that, everything? 
Somebody understands what I'm saying. <laughs> Says they preach the gospel. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders from every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Prayer and fasting are ongoing responsibilities for the believer and are, according to Jesus, necessary to cast out demons. So if he's talking to all of his disciples, what does this mean for us? And if prayer and fasting was something all believers were doing, then what, is he, what does that mean? What is he saying to us in relation to demons? What is he saying? I don't think he's given us the deliverance ministry strategy because most believers are not going to do what we typically call today deliverance ministry. They're not even going to be around it. There's only a small subset of Christians who will even live that kind of Christianity, particularly in America. But all believers presumably are going to do life with other believers and unbelievers. And all believers are battling a war that we can't always see. For Ephesians tells us we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers of darkness. Jesus is describing a way of life for the believer applied to spiritual warfare. And there are times when the only way to get rid of demonic attack is by targeted prayer and fasting. Here's what one commentator said. When the demon stubbornly refuses a command to leave a person, the disciple must resort to prayer for God's power to overcome that demon. It seems that they had not maintained their continued, talking about the disciples, it seems that they had not maintained their continued sense of dependence upon God's power through continued prayer. The disciples apparently had taken it for granted. The power to cast out demons was inherent in themselves, and they had no longer prayerfully depended on God for that power. It seems that the disciples believed the authority to cast out demons they received from Jesus was now under their own control, and so they had not relied on the unlimited power of God praying with a sincere faith. They must persevere in prayer. This is a general statement that miracles of any kind are possible only to those who pray. Not just his opinion, but I agree with him. And here becomes a challenge. We don't always know the spiritual state of people. I have no idea. The Bible does not make clear what was the spiritual state of the people that demons possessed and oppressed. What was the spiritual state of these people? And since Jesus is saying this to disciples for all time, who are going to be primarily around communities of believers, what is he saying? Is he saying that believers will be around believers and we should cast out demons that are, that are revealed through prayer and fasting? What does this mean? Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Or rather, what does this mean in relation to the influence demons can have on a believer? One more thought. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 is a, I explained this last week, but in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his ministry. There are people who are there that he called, we heard this last week, super apostles, right? But there are also false apostles who are following 
in, in, in Satan. And he is defending his ministry as an apostle. And he's highlighting the power in this to preach the gospel is the divine power of God to destroy the strongholds of unbelievers. That's what he's saying in, verse, in chapter 10 what we're about to read. Keep in mind, though, in chapter 11, he was saying, you all are receiving a different spirit. Keep that in mind. So at the very least, we have to consider that 2 Corinthians 10, which we're about to read, we have to consider the possibility that this passage applies to those who already believe in Jesus. And Paul says this, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So contextually, time doesn't allow me to walk through it the way I want to, but contextually, Paul is basically just describing that the gospel is the divine power of God to destroy the strongholds of thinking that opposes salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying contextually. That's what he's talking about. And that's proof of him that, that they're apostles of Jesus for real. But I want to look at this principally, not contextually, because we know that in the next chapter, Paul's telling believers that they can, they're receiving a different spirit than the one that they received, which is the Holy Spirit. So this idea of strongholds can be true for believers. So what is a stronghold? Well, it's a fortress, a prison. These are the Greek definitions. There's something that people fortify, make firm. They're a secure position. So a stronghold is a fortress that exists in people's lives. For the believer, most likely by giving in to the temptation of the flesh, inspired by previous failings of sin or prompted by demons. Believers can create strongholds in our thinking. These would be things like addictions. I know people who are addicted to who would say their addictions are addictions. But you're a believer. How are you addicted to? What happened? We all know people who have very distinct sinful attitudes. Nurture things like bitterness, resentment, or jealousy. Those aren't fruits of the spirit. He says, we have divine power to destroying strongholds. Why do you need divine power? Why do you need power from God to destroy strongholds? Because the strongholds are demonic. They're demonic. And the strongholds are thoughts and beliefs. Thoughts and beliefs. Why do you think there's so much emphasis in the Bible on renew your mind? Be sober-minded. 
discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Give thought to. Next week when we get to Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation. Why does your salvation need to be in your thinking? Because demonic influence comes by way of thoughts. And a believer who has the spirit, presumably, can give themselves over to demonic influence, beginning in their thinking, that will inform their actions. We need supernatural power to destroy supernatural strongholds. We give the devil a foothold or an opportunity, and that opens us up to demonic influence in our thinking. That demonic influence in thinking will create strongholds. That opens believers up to severe demonic influence. And now all of a sudden, you can't stop doing this. At least you believe to. You can't. I know people who have actually become Christians and repented of certain things, fell back into them, and felt like, I can't not do it. It's like, well, you already did that already. You already did not do it. So what's happening? Keep in mind what we've already heard about Satan, James 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, 4-7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When we read scriptural commands, we have to remember that the opposite is also true. So if you do not resist the devil, then he will not flee from you. He will not. If you are not sober-minded, if you are not watchful, if you are not firm in your faith, then Satan will devour you. He's talking to believers. There's a tension. Because we think, well, once someone professes to believe, they're good. No, once you profess to believe is when the battle begins. But you got to fight until the end. And if you give your mind over to habits of sin, patterns of sin, all of a sudden now, those thoughts become louder and louder. There is a tension. We are believers, presumably, we profess to believe, and we should, if we believe that. I don't think there's any reason to doubt your conversion. But none of us have evidence of our conclusion. No one in this room has persevered to the end. So all of these verses are to remind us to persevere to the end. Last week, I answered a question by asking a question. And I was pivoting off of this verse in 2 Timothy 3.5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And I answered a question saying, what is the power of godliness that Christians can deny? Be clear, we do have a power. 
2 Timothy 1, 7 through 9, he says, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So the power of God is a spirit. And the power of God here, 2 Timothy 1, allows us to share in the suffering of God. But what is the suffering of God? There is a power connected to godliness that you as a believer, I as a believer, can deny. There's a tension. You cannot live the conclusion of your salvation and skip the process of it. We are being saved, but until we believe when we leave, we haven't conquered to the end yet. So until that, we have a responsibility, as Mike said, to cooperate. All things are fair game. So what is that power? I believe it's in Titus 2, 11 through 15. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's the power. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you resist this power as a professing believer, Satan will devour you. You will receive a different spirit. And the person who used to sing up here and was so golly that we thought will swerve from the faith. Me and Mike were just talking about somebody the other day. Golly woman, we all thought. Swerve from the faith. Change their gender and everything and boasting about it on social media. She was beloved here. The Sunday after she sent an email to 70 members of this church, I preached a message in tears. Do not be confused by your experience or your temporary beliefs. There are tensions in the Bible, and all of it is a tension. All of it. We are responsible for our faith. We are responsible for stewarding the Holy Spirit because we can quench it. We cannot take our thoughts captive. Let us be open to demonic influence. And then a professing Christian will look like they have a demon. Because you let them have you. Because of time, let me skip to the summation. There's some things I didn't say, but I'll be, they'll be a part of this summation. Summarizing everything, it is possible for a professing believer to quench the spirit, to get rid of the spirit out of them. It is possible for a believer to receive a demonic spirit by believing in things that are not biblically true. It is possible for a believer to consistently think in satanic ways and even use the gifts of the spirit satanically. If we do not resist the devil, he will not flee, thereby opening us up to demonic strongholds where demons may become stronger in their influence over our battle with sin. 
I do not think demonic influence will largely be, I think it will be in our minds and that will influence our actions. I do believe that Satan, that, that believers are Satan's target and he will go after anything that he can to devour us, our children, our spouses, our families, our friends, co-workers, our attitudes and actions. He's trying to find anything he can do to devour. I think the combination of prayer and fasting are superpowers against demonic attack. As a Christian, a demon cannot force you to obey it. It doesn't have that power. But if you become practitioners of sin, then you give it that power. You are essentially obeying unrighteousness, obeying Satan. A demon, I believe, gains power when we're unwilling to resist the temptations we face. And by default, we build demonic strongholds instead of destroy them. I think deliverance of a demon may be necessary for some professing believers who have not resisted the devil, who do not fast and pray to destroy strongholds, and have become enslaved to demonic influence in their thoughts, attitudes, and actions. I do believe the majority of Christians do not and will not need deliverance from a demon. If for no other reason, because there is not a credible translation in the Bible that tells us to the letters of the Christians and the churches to cast out demons. There is not a credible verse in the Bible that says cast demons out of one another, brothers and sisters. But that does not mean that we can allow demons to overtake us by not taking seriously the responsibility to be stewards of our faith. I do not think that any of us should be so satisfied in our confession that we forget that we have to conquer. Your confession is just that. Your conviction proves your confession but it has to be there until the conclusion of your life. It is the Lord who will tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. So if you see someone who professes to believe and they walk away, you'll be like, but how can a Christian trust what John said? They were not of us. They were not of us. At best, we're professing believers. We're Christians when we make it. But pastor, the Bible says Christian, Christians use three times in the Bible. Peter's the only one who uses it as a name. It's used twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. It's used three times in the Bible. Peter uses it once. No one else uses that. They use believers, heirs of God, sons, daughters, all these other names. I'm not saying you can't say you're not a Christian. You can say that. But I think don't let that name or that confession be the conclusion of your perseverance. There are many people confused because they're trying to resolve tensions. The Bible doesn't resolve that tension. I've seen believers, churches, denominations split over something that's just your theological preference. It, the Bible does not resolve the tension. I do think many believers that want to be delivered, they want to do so because they don't want to do the work of taking thoughts captive. They don't want to resist the devil they don't want to pray and fast and grow in the process of holiness. They want a holy zap. 
I, I got a demon in me so I can just get this cast out and then I can just. That's just not how it works. Because there are quite a few people that are going to deliverance ministry again. Again, I'm not saying there's no place for deliverance ministry, especially for non-Christians, sure, non-professing believers. I just think some believers want to be delivered from the work of obedience. And if you come to Solid Rock, it just ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. We're going to hold ourselves. We all got flaws, obvious, but we're going to hold ourselves to faithfulness, though. We're not going to deliver people from the work of obedience. And that means whether it's a flaw in your, whether it's a, a character issue or a neurobiological issue. Deliverance promises a holy zap. That's the wrong perspective. Medications can be very helpful, but they do not make you very holy. They do not. You still have to persevere and fight. There is no medication that you take. No therapy, no nothing that will all of a sudden give you an empowered use of the Holy Spirit. Those things can be helpful or they can be harmful. But all of us have a responsibility to persevere. I do think that demons are given some access to our thoughts in order to plant thoughts to tempt us to sin. How that works, the Bible doesn't say. I do think they are allowed to be around us, for sure. I don't think they can just be in us unless, by our care, we invite them in. But I thought if the Holy Spirit is in you, just conquer to the end. Conquer to the end. But I struggle with this by, by a lot. I'm, I'm dead. You got to fight to the end. Your psychological, psychiatric evaluation often is, 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 is describing what you tell it. It doesn't say why you're this way, why you feel this way. And we don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because it's hard. We have a responsibility to not let demons have influence over us. I want to close with a page from a book, the best book I've ever read on the demonic possession. John Warwick Montgomery, this is an older book, it's an anthology of a bunch of, this is what it says in the front, an unusual collection of experiences, case history studies, and conclusions from a wide range of professional people, including doctors, psychiatrists, scientists, historians, theologians, and college professors. And they're all talking about demon possession. This is the best book I've ever read, and I'm reading. I've recommended it to a few people, and now they can't stop reading it. Chris, my bad, man. I didn't mean to put you hip, but now you can't put it down. I want to read page 289 in closing. This is what he says. Chapter 18, for me so far, is the best chapter in this book. And here's what he says. Our commission is to bear witness. We cannot bear witness effectively unless we place God's kingdom above everything else we hold dear our security, our family's well-being, our very lives. Of what value is a verbal witness when Christianity in practice is a nice addition to life as we know it, icing on the cake, so to speak? 
I see no reason to instruct churches in dealing with demons. They need to first know how to deal with dollars, with mortgages, investments, material luxuries, by burning and burying them if need be. Some of y'all ain't going to like that part. <laughs> I don't like that part. He says, my conservative stance is reinforced by observing this impact of instruction on demonism in a number of congregations. The occult is a new delicacy which titillates the jaded appetites of pulpit-weary evangelicals. It is hot copy. Overnight, a lethargic congregation can buzz with a fever of activity. Prolonged prayer meetings, glowing testimonies of deliverance become the order of the day. But when all the excitement dies down, what is the result? Often, one or two people have found release from bondage of some kind, perhaps more from besetting sins, resentment, and bitternesses than real demons. Many demons exercised by charismatic groups differ from those found in the New Testament in that they are spirits of psychological bondage, e.g. of anger, resentment, fear, pride, rejections, etc. I would not question their satanic origin or that charismatic groups sometimes deal very effectively with them, only that what is cast out is not a being so much as a sinful attitude. It is probably to such, it is probably to such enslaving attitudes that Daniels, an Indian evangelist, refers as strange spirits. Loving concern has been shown, and this is always good, marital and group therapy of cathartic nature has, on the whole, had a sweetening effect but the impact on the darkness around, usually, I have seen none. In other instances, I have seen the initial interest coalesce into a rigid pattern of demon hunting. The church, by its behavior, displays more respect for demons than for God. It becomes demon-oriented, and that is bad. If it spent time singing the praises of Jesus, it would be more profitably occupied. We need to learn not to respect demons, but to disrespect them. I believe it is possible to declare a general principle teaching to the church as a whole should not focus excessively on the occult. Teaching about Satan, about demons, about spiritual warfare should be introduced along with regular positive teaching. This is how the apostles distributed in the epistles. You may ask how I treat so serious a matter in so cavalier a fashion. It is true that we are engaged in a warfare with principalities and powers. But in warfare, your principal aim, surprising as it may seem, is not to beat the enemy. Beating the enemy is secondary to some other object. You defeat his army because he tried to stop you from controlling his oil fields. While it is important to know your enemy and to be alert against his attack, your main focus is on something else. In spiritual warfare, our goal is to set men free. If the enemy can lure us into being too preoccupied with him, he has won a major tactical victory. Lastly, a second general principle in teaching the church as a whole is teaching should not focus on the phenomena of possession or on fine distinctions between oppression, possession, and other esoteric specifics but on how a Christian should overcome Satan in his everyday living. Paul's famous passage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which will be there next week, is usually expounded well, but it is losing popularity in the face of more salacious material. The brief mentioned by John in, in the Apocalypse 
in, in Revelation 12, 11, about the overcomers need also to be brought home to Christians. And here's what John 12, 11, let me read the whole passage, 7 through 11. We've heard this passage plenty in this series. Now war arose in heaven, Revelation 12, beginning of verse 7 through 11. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown out, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11. And they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives. They loved not their lives even unto death. So what he's saying is, Revelation is saying that the way that believers have overcome the devil is through by the blood, faith in the blood, but by their testimony. That means their obedience, their faithfulness. And their obedience was so much so that they were willing to die rather than disobey. Many of us in this room believe that, but I would challenge all of us to consider, is that true? Are you willing to die for your faith before you disobey it? Deliverance ministry works both ways. People can be delivered out of darkness, and we can deliver ourselves right into it. Now, this doesn't resolve every tension because the Bible doesn't. Anything that anyone says is based on their experience and their hope that it's true. The Bible is clear that the issue is not clear. <laughs> what the Bible is clear on is a lot of what I said already. Professing believers can submit to demonic influence to such a degree that you can swerve from the very profession of faith that you had at one point in your life. So take these things seriously. I don't care what your experiences are. A lot of them are going to rival what the Bible says. Whether your experiences are supernatural or not, obedience is necessary. As you'll see next week, in all of the armor that we have to put on, Fruit, obedience, is one of them. The breastplate of righteousness. You will not find one supernatural gift or anything in that list. In fact, if they were so important, then why is the book of Corinthians the only one that talks about them? Why didn't Paul tell Timothy and Titus, make sure this is happening in your church? Because it's that important. You will not find a credible passage in the Bible of people chasing experiences with the Holy Spirit. But you will find people empowered by that spirit to snatch others out of the fire and to persevere, even if it means losing their own lives. That's what I want to be known for. And that, in that sense, no demon is going to have that much influence over me to stop that. Because by his grace, I refuse to let it. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of tension in your word.
There's a lot of things that just make us uncomfortable because we love certainty. But even the, even the, even the idea of faith, which you say it is impossible to please God without faith, is not a certainty in what we want. It's the hope of these things. We're certain in you. But a lot of our faith has tensions. We believe things that we can't really see. Father, I pray that you would not let any of us in this church allow mainly our experiences to evaluate our truth. While there are some experiences that, that, that your word does not always directly show us, we, we see enough to know what to do. We may not be able to answer every circumstance and every occasion because your, your word is not built for that. You didn't give us every situation that could possibly happen. This is what it means. But you've given us enough truth that we should be able to, at the very least, spot some of these lies, especially the ones that affect the way we think. We ought to be sober-minded and watchful. I pray for those of us who are lazy in their thinking, who are selfish in their actions, who just somehow think that coasting in their faith is somehow pleasing to you, I pray that you would convict all of us, Lord. Reveal in each and every one of us ways that we can grieve the Spirit. And Lord, please reveal to us if we are quenching the Spirit. For what good would it be to be a Christian for some of my life? Only to inherit an eternal life not even being able to benefit from some of what I did on earth. Lord, may we be believers to the end. And while we have confidence that we believe, may that confidence do nothing but encourage us to endure to the end, to conquer, so that we can hear from you, yeah, you're a Christian. For now, Lord, May our profession lead to our perseverance until it leads to seeing your face for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.